Our sermon this morning will come from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. Let's now hear from the word of the Lord. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Well, when we come to Jesus's words in chapter 5, verses 31 through 32 on the subject of divorce, we see the virtue of seeing God speaking specifically to us, even now through his word, promoting a greater life within his own kingdom. For, for verses and verses, paragraphs and paragraphs, he has been upholding and heralding what it means to be a son or a daughter in his kingdom. Now, last week, I was amazed at the number of people who commented on my sermon about the doctrine of hell, not, not about my per- sermon in particular, but in the pure lack of preaching on the doctrine altogether. I, I asked the question, how many of you have ever heard just a straight up sermon on hell? And I had about eight people come up to me afterwards and say, they've never heard that. And on the way home from church driving with Brooke, I actually, it hit me. I've actually never heard a sermon on the doctrine of hell. I've heard hell within different sermons and different teachings and different lectures on it. And so now we come to another difficult topic, another difficult issue that is not shy from Jesus' own words. And so we come to the doctrine or the issue of divorce, its consumption of our fears because of its turmoil within the souls of man. We approach this humbly. Now, this church has a pattern and proudly uh, of expositional preaching, not because legendary pastors have done it, not because we see this as a pattern of scripture where, where we see the author of Hebrews just explaining expositionally the covenants of the Old Testament and not even because it keeps us from moronic sermon series like hashtag best summer ever or spice up your life in three ways within your marriage. But because we are forced to look at scripture the way God has supremely and spiritually given them to us. It is no accident that Jesus spoke these particular words. It is no accident that these words are formed in the way that they were and presented to us in in the level of which they have. We as Christians are to submit ourselves to the doctrine of Scripture because through it, we see God on his own terms. And by it, we are transformed into the likeness of a son by submitting ourselves to the pathway of his own sovereign testimony. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the gospel of Jesus concerns every part and portion of our life. And have, we have no right to say that any part of our own life is outside of God's holy scope. And so in approaching these verses, I want you to be reminded of the background of, of what Jesus is teaching of. The Beatitudes of the heart of the followers of Jesus are telling us that we need a new heart in order to worship him purely. Following Jesus' own words in the Beatitudes, we see this plan for discipleship of us being salt and light in the world. And then followed by that are our six sets of teachings where Jesus exposes or exposits his supremacy and ability to teach and interpret God's law. 
And so we find ourselves within the third of those six passages that come one after another. His teaching is not in comparison, we might think, to the law of Moses. So it's not like Moses had a law, but here comes Jesus's own good and better law. But rather, we see that what Jesus is doing is comparing himself with the way the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching regular things in those days. And that's why he would use words like, you've heard it said. And then he would paraphrase or quote from the scriptures. He he compares his brilliance with the common teaching of the day from the scribes and Pharisees. And he sets out to correct the perversions that others have brought his father's law. And he does this thirdly with the law that pertains to divorce. Now to understand this passage in its scope, we have to start where Jesus starts in verse 31. So let me just read it to you again. It It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And what we see here is what Jesus does is he goes to the law in Deuteronomy 24. Now, Matthew 19 will actually expand this a little bit more. There's a lot more words in Matthew 19 on the topic of divorce that we'll come to, at least at this pace, in maybe five or six years. But let's go ahead and go to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and read the passages that Jesus is alluding to. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that fifth book of the Torah, Deuteronomy chapter 24, where Jesus is paraphrasing this, not quoting it altogether, but in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, God's word says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in the hand and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs from the house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she had been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin Upon the, Lord, upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, confusing enough, maybe you hadn't gotten to that portion of Scripture in your Bible reading through the year, or maybe you've skipped over that going, wow, that seems really peculiar. I'm not sure what's happening in that house. So what was the purpose of Moses' words about divorce? Why was Jesus using this in order to demonstrate a teaching on the law? You see it right away with these two passages that the whole object of Moses' law was to fairly regulate divorce. That was was the primacy of what Moses was doing. Stuff was so out of control that he needed to bring order to God's people because of how they were living. Divorce in that era had just become chaotic. It was out of control. Like you think it's bad now, it was even worse then and it was even more futile then than it is now. In those days, men had a very, very low view of women in general. Men had come to believe that they had every right to divorce their wife for nearly any frivolous reason, such as literally cooking a bad meal. If you didn't like what she was making, you could put her out of your household, not just on top of all the other reasons that you could do. If you didn't like what she was starting to look like or how she was talking or what she was doing or what her friends were, you could put her out. And if you wanted her out, you could be done so. Now, to be clear, the reasons for this were pure ungodliness. 
The reasons that people would want to put their wives out was out of typical lust and fleshly passions. You see, the, you see the brilliance of how the Sermon on the Mount is unfolding here, where from lust comes adultery, and from adultery comes, in this passage, divorce. So it wasn't just that. I mean, what man actually wakes up with his bride, doesn't like the eggs and bacon, and says, get out, unless there's something way darker happening inside? an expose of his hardened heart, where lust leads way to adultery and adultery leads way to divorce. But Moses' law was given in order to control a chaotic issue here. The rampant situation was unfair to women. So what the law was doing, the Mosaic law was doing, were bringing in those who were suffering because of the hands of the ungodliness and bringing order to it by actually giving these women rights. There are a couple ways that that the Mosaic Law was doing this. Three ways the Mosaic Law was doing this. The law first limited divorce to particular causes. It couldn't just be for anything. All of men's crazy excuses are now limited. He not only had to prove his heinous sin, he not only had to prove the heinous sin of his wife, he had to prove it, he couldn't just allude to it, but he also had to prove it with two other written witnesses. And there are actual historical documents of written things where it would describe what was done. His name would be printed. Her name would be printed. And then one witness and two witnesses. And that certificate was given to her so that she could go off on her own and regain her life. So it was limited. But the law also enforced that divorcing man had to give his wife a certificate of divorce. He couldn't just abandon her and leave her out the dry. Before this, man could say that he was done with his wife and turn her out where without her own fortune, which was highly unlikely in this culture that, that women would have no money on their own, she would have to become a beggar. Or even worse, she would be known by the outside world as an adulterer because why would ever a man cast out his wife unless she was an adulterer, unless she had a certificate? So this protected the woman's ability to remarry by she would be able to publicly say that what was done to her was not through any heinous sin. And then third, the law enforced that the man's word would be true and steadfast. He couldn't remarry her again. Imagine a man divorces his wife and she's free to go about and she remarries someone else. And that second husband, he may do the same. They may break up or he may pass away, but she's not allowed to go back to the first. He's not allowed to marry her again. And the reason is aiming to elevate marriage. It's not something that you can walk in and out of. It's not something where it's kind of jokingly talked about today of a man is on his fourth wife and it's actually the third person. Right where he went back to something that he used to like, and now he has another reason to go back to her. And so I hope that makes Deuteronomy clear to you, that when Jesus seems to be archaically talking about something from the Old Covenant, and we see within our own Bibles the small print where he's alluding to Deuteronomy 24, that it's making it a little bit clearer. It's far from how the scribes and Pharisees taught it, and that's what Jesus is trying to bring out. It's clear in Deuteronomy 24 of what you're supposed to do in situations like this, and what has become unclear is what the scribes and Pharisees were ordering people to do. God's law brings order to chaos, and man's sin always brings chaos to God's order. So that's what Deuteronomy is about, but what's this passage talking about in verse 31, where Jesus is saying, but it's been said. What were the scribes and Pharisees teaching? 
Well, in short, they said that the law of Moses was commanding people to divorce in these limited actions. That whenever something would happen, they would be urged or they would be told. You can imagine someone telling you about what their wife would have done and you would have said, okay, I'm going to call the district attorney and let's set up a court date. Moses' law never commanded anyone to divorce his wife. All it did was say to man, if you want to divorce your wife, there are conditions to be met that cares for her. And this is what is exposed in Matthew 19 and what it addresses where Jesus is saying that scribes and Pharisees were commanding divorces. What they were doing was taking the law. So this is, this is why Jesus is using this now on the third time in these passages of six. What Jesus is saying that the scribes and Pharisees were commanding divorces, he was saying they were taking the law and taking their view of unclean and they were, lear- they were reading the law through the lens of their own cultural view of uncleanliness. You see how the two are used in a, in a perverted nature. You have, you have the purity of God's word, and then you have cultural standards that you and I have all together, right? And then instead of reading our culture through the lens of scripture, they were reading their scripture through the lens of their culture. It's just an easy way to describe legalism taking your cultural value or something that you value and sifting God's word through it instead of taking God's word and sifting your cultural value through his word. There are a myriad of examples that we do this today, maybe accidentally or on purpose, and the charge is always legalism. And here's the case where Jesus is showing that these scribes and Pharisees who were supposed to be so fully aware of the law that they would teach it accurately and they were expanding it or contracting it. They were expanding it out of fear, and they were contracting it out of a fear of love. For example, they taught that if a man didn't like his wife, if she wasn't happy with him, then she was called unclean. Now imagine that, just getting kind of mad at your spouse. You know, we all do it. Why did you fold the clothes that way? Or why did you mow the yard that way? Not like it's ever been said. Why did you park here? Or why don't you do this? Or whatever. All of a sudden, it becomes a charge of uncleanliness a defilement of a spouse, now seen by the world as a fornicator, when in reality, I just might have wanted stuff stacked differently in a room that no one goes into. All of these are examples that I've never lived through. The only thing that they cared about was being appropriate in the minds of the culture around them, not in the minds of Scripture. They wanted to be seen and known as good to the culture rather than what the word says. So they would give a certificate of divorce and say, just go on your own way. And here they were dismissing the spirit of the law, but convincing themselves that they were following the letter of the law. They were checking all the right boxes. They were filling out all the right forms. They were talking with who they needed to talk to. They were diminishing women and their duty through their vows to love her, but at least they were caring for her by giving her a certificate of divorce. How noble of them. They'd failed to see the purpose of marriage, that it's actually not about you and also not about you, but also and only about the glory of God. One of the things that is remarkable that I learn and that I'm sure you all have learned, and you could probably all tell me we learn at different stages and at different speeds, but we often see things like a marriage as me being an incomplete puzzle, and I just need to find that piece 
that helps me be a complete person. And if I can just find that peace, you know, like let's say that I'm a grumpy Gus and it'd be really great for everyone's sanity if I had a really nice person beside me. And oh, look, there's Brooke. Everyone likes her. She's really charming. If I can just commune with her and actually be married to her, then we'll be a good family. But sin slowly seeps in. And what God tells us is that the point of marriage is not you being complete, but you growing in sanctification or becoming more holy. The problem with every marriage is actually the person who sees the problem of every marriage as himself. And what Jesus is doing is exposing our tendency to want to expand or contract the law in order to make culture dictate God's word rather than the other way around. And so here comes Jesus, fulfilling the law, teaching the true merit of marriage and the true issue of divorce. He has spoken about what was said in Deuteronomy 24, and then he had spoken about what has been said in that culture around him. And so we see now, thirdly, if you're using an outline, we see and ask ourselves the question, what does Jesus teach here in this passage? He's talked about Deuteronomy 24. He's talked about what was commonly talked about in that day. But what does he now teach us as the great teacher? And we can break his own teaching down into three statements. There are three things that Jesus so clearly says in verse 32. First one is, anyone who divorces her wife causes her to become an adulteress. It's not going to get better either. Number two, anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And there's one exception, number three, except with marital unfaithfulness or sexual immorality. Fornication. The root word here is pornania, where we get our word pornography. So it's not just actions here, but a hardened heart. So divorce for any other reason outside of marital unfaithfulness. Pornia. Divorce for any other reason outside of marital unfaithfulness, Jesus says is adultery. The man who divorces his wife for illegitimate reasons places everyone, you think of it, not just him, not just her, but everyone else in an adulterous situation. So now I want us to ask a couple of questions here from Jesus in this text. Remember the three things that Jesus teaches. Anyone who divorces his wife causes her to become an adulteress. Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, except with one exception, marital unfaithfulness. So we want to ask a couple of questions here of our Lord and what he is teaching, because that's if we wait till we get to chapter 19 of Matthew, that's a longer section where his teaching unfolds. But let's ask him some questions now. The first one is, is divorce a sin? Is divorce a sin? Yes. Divorce on illegitimate grounds is adultery. In fact, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, God says that he hates this. He hates adultery because it's a sin. Or hates divorce because it's a sin. So is divorce a sin? Number two, can you divorce for any reason? Again, the obvious answer is no based on the text. Can a Christian divorce for any reason? No, based on this text. Now, I kind of gave that caveat there for a second. Can a Christian divorce for any reason? If you're here and you're not a Christian and you are terrified of coming into a sermon like this because of your feelings or your past or your parents or your kids' past, you need to know that if you are outside of Christ, this kind of thing doesn't involve you. We pray it does. We pray that it speaks to you. We pray that it has command over your life and that you find the Lord through it. But you need to know that, that we as Christians are called by God to live a certain way, a different way, a way that's different from the world. In the world, you can divorce for any reason. You know, we laugh at the idea of like, I can't believe they would divorce people for making a bad meal. 
Walk right down the street and you'll find a thousand stories of the same kind of thing. I just didn't like them anymore. They didn't make me happy. This other person made me happy. I want to fulfill my dreams. Well, don't go to bed as much. Stay awake and you won't dream as much. Can you divorce for any reason from Scripture, Christian? No. Now, does verse 32 command or require divorce? That's kind of the issue here. Well, I want you to look over at Matthew 19, verse 7. Turn over several pages in your scriptures, Matthew 19, verse 7. Does Scripture command divorce for adultery? Matthew 19, verse 7. Matthew 19, verse 7, it says, They said to him, being scribes and Pharisees, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? You see, the scribes and the Pharisees understood that marital unfaithfulness meant there must be a divorce. A wife couldn't remain in the situation. It had to end, and it had to end by divorce. There's no way that she could ever stay there, or the roles were flipped if the husband was committing adultery against the wife. But Jesus didn't require divorce in any situation. Rather, he permits it on this ground. And there's a difference there, permitting versus commanding. Look look at the next verse, verse 8. In chapter 19, it says, He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. They were turning God's teaching on its head. And what Jesus is doing in this passage is pulling it back. So can you divorce for any reason? No. Third, is marital unfaithfulness the only scriptural permission? Or is marital unfaithfulness the only scriptural permissible reason to divorce? Is marital unfaithfulness the only scriptural permissible reason to divorce? Well, it is the most clear. However, a case can easily be made from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. So go over and turn over to 1 Corinthians, a couple books away. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. This indicates that desertion or abandonment is permissible. I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. I love the sound of your pages turning. You need to, get them, you need to turn them faster. But <laughs> if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. This indicates that desertion or abandonment is permissible. So if the spouse, if an unbelieving spouse leaves a believing spouse, in verse 15, we're told that one can let the other go. Now, it's important to know what desertion includes here. Obviously, abandonment or refusing to come back or leaving and never coming home. Now, in that case, you could move to a town away and you would never hear from someone again, right? In our case, you couldn't move across the world without being inundated with their Facebook posts, right? It's hard to ever actually get away, but in this case, understanding what a separation means or departing or abandonment means, it means that person has volitionally left the relationship. They have broken off the vows that they have meant to take. But it also includes not just spatial departing, but also spousal abuse, unrepentant abuse, unrepentant physical abuse of a spouse, especially verse 15 with verse 13 in mind. If you just look up a couple of 
uh, verses. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And I can't wait, I can't, I can't think of an easier way to explain this, but if your spouse is beating you, if your husband is beating you, he is not looking to live with you in harmony. He is breaking the vows that God has given him, that he has given you, that if they were married in a church, the church body would have understood this to mean in any case of abuse. I don't think it's right and okay for a woman to remain in a home with a husband who is abusing her. It is right for her to go elsewhere to separate herself physically and go into the care of another Christian woman or a Christian family, to let the dust settle or seek out repentance from the abusive person. And, and this is part of the privilege of the church where when we see a poor person, of course we want to give them shelter or food. When we see a battered wife, we say, we don't have an extra bed, but I'll give you mine. Come stay here for as long as you want. We'll, we'll open up the showers of the church. We'll have you into our own home. Stay as long as you want because what he is doing is not allowed in our covenant community. And until he repents and calls you back to himself and until you can forgive him and seek reconciliation between the two of you, I would just say pastorally or even as a brother or a sister, we, wouldn't, we would only get in the way of those two people, wouldn't we? we would see that person breaking their covenant, breaking their vow, breaking their promise, doing the most harmful thing that you can do to a daughter of the Lord to strike her. Now, this doesn't mean that a marriage has to end in divorce. Remember, Jesus doesn't command that divorce has to happen. There are so many cases where repentance has been carried out and trust has been regained. But there certainly are situations where a man's unrepentance and abuse is beyond safety. It's beyond repair. It's beyond trust. And if he's unrepentant, it's beyond the vows that he took. He's lost his right. He's abandoned his privilege and separated himself from this covenant. Many such relationships have recovered, but there are also cases where divorce is the natural and appropriate end, though solemnly and sadly. Now, in our church's case, you would think that we would be different from the world where One in five women are victims of domestic abuse. And just to be clear, that means home abuse, in the home. One of five. One of five. And the reality is that it's the exact same number in the church. Which means there are some of you who are sitting in darkness out of fear. And I want you to maybe not physically look around, but I want you to recognize of all the other men and women in this church, in this room right now, who do not think that is right. What has been done to you, we do not think that is right. And you can come to us with the shelter that you deserve. And for the men that have abused women, or the women that have abused men, you need to know that there may not be judgment poured out on you in the court of law, or even in the court of our own church through discipline, but there will be judgment on your head at one day. And you can either wait for it or you can come to the Lord in repentance. You can come to the Lord for the forgiveness of your own sin, but also the doing away with the penalty that you you deserve. And so are there cases where people can divorce scripturally? Yes, I think you can make the argument clearly from uh, from Jesus' own words as well as Paul that, that 
in cases of adultery or abandonment or the abandoning of the vows are laid true. Number four, why does God permit divorce and call it sin if according to the Old Testament he hates it? Why does God permit divorce divorce if he hates it? Well, in Matthew 19, we're told that permitting divorce wasn't originally so. But because of the hardness of men's hearts, Moses made the exception. It was because of the hardness of their hearts that divorce was tolerated, but it was never approved of. In every case of divorce I've seen, there's always been one person in the relationship who's just been unwilling to forgive, unwilling to let go, unwilling to reconcile. Their their hearts have been so hardened that they are completely resistant to reconciliation. They would leave if they could, and they would forget if they could. And I think there's an exception here because God detests more than anything else. God detests more than divorce or any other kind of thing. He detests idolatry more than anything else. And in the New Testament, marital unfaithfulness that leads to adultery, that comes from sexual immorality, is an outflow of man or woman's own idolatry. Making an idol of those passions and serving those passions, pursuing images or people or situations or relationships that are, that are not yours, and by serving them with the lust of your flesh, you have not only committed a sin against your spouse, but most definitely a sin against the Lord who commands to us that we are to have no other gods but him. So to, why does God commit, permit divorce and call it, even though he calls it, Something that he hates because of man's idolatry. Now, number five, does divorce rule out remarriage? Does divorce rule out remarriage? There are differing opinions on this. There are differences of opinion here even within our own church and probably even within the greater church at large. On one extreme, some say yes, always, because it says here that that it's adultery to remarry. So it's wrong to remarry. Another end says that no, never. They turn grace into a license to divorce and remarry for any reason again and again. If you want to get married five times, it's fine. There must be no problem with you. Some take a middle position, though, and this is where I would be. A Christian may remarry if they're not the offending party causing divorce. They're not the ones who have broken the covenant. I actually think you lose a right in marriage if you've broken it off. And I think it's your duty to wait for either reconciliation to happen or for that person to go off and remarry on their own where there's no opportunity for uh, reconciliation or that person passes away. I think that, that this last one makes the most sense considering all of Scripture's teaching on the issue. The one initiating the divorce breaks the covenant, breaking the promise. So the one who was broken against or the one who was offended, I think they can remarry. The one who broke the covenant, I think they need to wait. And if they're a Christian, show patience and submit themselves to the timing of the Lord and also the urgency and desire of reconciliation, or if that person marries again, then they should either decide to wait longer or they feel free to divorce or free to remarry. According to Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 19 and Matthew chapter 5, the offending person, the breaker of the covenant, I think should remain unmarried. Now, fourth, I want to give you some final thoughts. So we've seen what Jesus exposes here from Deuteronomy 24. We're seeing what he exposed as what is the common teaching of that day. And then we see what also he teaches clearly in verse 32. But I want to give you some final considerations and final thoughts. It's so fascinating to me that according to statistics, 50 to 60% of marriages end in divorce. And the number goes up 
after the second marriage. It's tragically high, and that statistic is basically, they say, equal for Christians. Amongst people who say or who submit themselves to Jesus' own words that we shouldn't divorce. This scenario, though, is a reality, right? I've seen statistics or articles where they say, well, it's not really 50, it's more like 45. And you're like, at what point, what difference does it make? It's a reality that all of us live in. In this room, all of us are touched by the issue of divorce, whether directly or indirectly, whether as a former spouse or as a child or as a parent. So I want to offer a couple of comments about these situations. I want to to talk to you briefly to those of you who are in the midst of a divorcing situation, whether you're pursuing it or it's being pursued on you. Considering pushing forward in this divorce, I, I want to tell you that if you profess Christ, I urge you to remember your vows with God who is quick to care for you in times of trouble. Be not afraid is the most repeated phrase in the scriptures, that marriage is a one flesh, lifetime covenant commitment between two people. Whatever may be prompting you toward divorce, know that in your marriage right now, as terrible as it might feel, know that in your marriage, God wants to reveal the glory of your gospel even through you. We're two sinners that bring glory to a present, involved, loving, and faithful God. In the midst of trial, God still aims to bring himself more glory into his own people, more pleasure in his own glory. Please think and pray through this. Divorce aims to lie to you and to the watching world about God's love. Satan would love nothing more than for that to happen. So hold fast to the steadfast testimony of our Lord that his faithfulness endures forever. Ask yourself, do I have clear biblical grounds for this divorce? Remember, unrepentant adultery or an unbelieving spouse's abandonment of the vows. If no, if you don't have biblical grounds, I ask you to pull back. There's no shame or embarrassment with refusing to sign, with tearing up the papers, with aiming to seek reconciliation. Search your heart through God's word to see if there is a hardness toward his own will, a darkness towards his love and desire. And if so, if there is hardness within your heart or a darkness within your heart and you know the right thing to do is to wait on the Lord, then friend, pull back, wait, prepare to forgive while keeping in mind what God has done in Christ to forgive you. The most impossible thing in the world may feel like forgiving an offensive person. But remember what God did in bringing us from death to life. Second, for those who are divorced and you're not a Christian. So for those who are divorced and you're not a Christian, it's my duty as a pastor of this church to tell you that the scripture says that divorce is clearly a sin. And though you may have been judged by self-righteous people, people who call themselves Christians, God will not wrongly judge you. The, The judgment that you may feel, I hope you feel, is not from us. Remember that God is a righteous judge. We see this in the scriptures. But hear me, alongside his judgment... The grace of God, the mercy of God is sufficient to cover over and forgive every single sin. Nailed to the cross of Christ is every sin of his own people. You may sit here feeling completely undone, embarrassed, or overwhelmed in the regret toward your own sin or the sin that's been done against you. The sorrow you feel is a gift, an invitation of the Lord to see The grace of Christ's sacrificial death 
as an invitation to turn to him with your sins and to call to him for your forgiveness. God forgives. You don't have to bear those sins anymore. Turn to Christ for his grace. Those of you who do not know the Lord, you can know him. Even in the midst you think of, in the midst of your own trial or sin. Now third, if you're divorced and not remarried. If you're divorced and not remarried, biblically, a couple of questions would be, can you be reconciled? Have you prayed for reconciliation? Now, you may be in a situation where that's impossible, either by your former spouse having passed away or they're remarried on your own. I I hope that you'll think through and pray through if you should remarry or not. Remember that the role of singleness towards a formerly married person is still the same as someone who might be 21 and single or 95 and single, that it is a good thing that the Lord gives to some people. If you can remarry, I ask that you would pursue it in light rather than in darkness, in the company of brothers and sisters within the church. Now, this is a different day of dating, even than when I was dating, which was like six years ago, right? The way that that people get to know each other is totally different than it was 10 or 50 years ago for some of you. But whatever way that presents you, I just ask that you would do that in the company of other brothers or sisters who are charged in our commitment and membership to look out for one another with joy. You know, as like a younger brother, my job is not to be an attack dog for my older sister, right? I'm the younger brother. I want to be, but I'm the younger brother, right? But if someone were to come alongside her, it would be a joy to be a partner in that and to pray for that and to think through that with her and just seek the Lord and thanksgiving for that wonderful thing of a pure remarriage can be. Seek accountability in the current or future relationship for the aim of godliness in your own sanctification. Now, fourth, if you are a Christian who's divorced and now remarried, I fully recognize the potential awkwardness you have felt for 30 plus minutes now. 35, let's be honest. A sense of guilt, a sense of pain, a sense of anger against your former spouse against me, a sense of shame because of what has happened, the situation that you are in, and in a certain sense of what do I do with this passage given that I am divorced and now I'm remarried? What do I do with that former relationship that may still have bitterness or may have unrepented sin or may just be this awkward feeling of I don't even know what I don't even know about it? That with other things. Lay that relationship at the foot of the cross. Lay it at the foot of Jesus in repentance who is for you the righteousness of God. Jesus has worn every sin for you. He has forgiven and removed every sin from your account. You live now in Christ and live in the hope of the future of him coming and making things all th- making all things new on your behalf. Take it to Christ. Leave all of your burdens on him. And turn to the spouse that the Lord has given you now. Turn to them fully. Love them fully. Confess to them, I'm not who I should be and I don't want to be who I once was. But by the grace of God, I am washed and I am yours. Give yourself in faith to the spouse that God has given you. Beautify it the way that Christ beautifies his bride. So I know that guys don't like to use the word beauty, and I don't either, right? I don't want to go up to something and be like, that's really beautiful. But look at what the word says, that in 
in the beautiful form of love, it is Christ who washes his bride, meaning the church, with his word, presenting her faultless to the Lord. Go in the grace of God, because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Now, in conclusion, if you need to be reminded that Jesus here is the interpreter and the teacher of the law, not the expander or the denier of it. He's made the case for and given permission to divorce on the grounds of adultery and that the offended party is entitled to be cared for. Marriage is a beautiful and delicate thing that the Lord gives many, should be honored by all, and most seriously protected and prayed for and cherished by our church. In the basis of the gospel and in the interest of truth, I am compelled to say this. Even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It's a terrible sin. It's a hurtful sin. The the scriptures call it grievous and an impactful sin on so many families and people within the families. But God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that they cannot be forgiven and redeemed by the love of God. Friend, if you are truly repentant and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God in Christ, the things that we have sung about with the stanzas that seem to be the same, but they are repeating to us new and wonderful truth, you can be forgiven and assured of his pardon because of the blood that was poured out for you on the cross. Hear the words, though, of our blessed Lord. Now go and sin no more. It's not surprising that our world is the way that it is while men and women play fast and loose, not just with each other, but with God's holy word. We must start, though, with our own hearts. We must draw the line that that Jesus has been doing, not from the outward to the outward, but from the outward to the inward. We must draw the line from the outward actions and let them expose our inward problem. May our hearts be exposed as being so prone and so intent on pursuing other things than the Lord, that we come to him with our whole hearts, with our meek hearts, with our poor hearts in spirit and call out to him for help in whatever relationship we're in. And may we be brought to repentance that restores and by repentance be brought to restoration and from restoration be brought to brotherly love where in the company of saints, broken are we, yet faithful is he. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord, we are We're amazed at the tenderness of your love towards broken people. And so we all call out to you and ask that you would forgive us of our sins. That you would stir up within us a pursuit of holiness. Lord, we desperately need you in all of our lives, in each marriage, in each relationship, in each friendship, in each parent or sonship. And we go to you with confidence. We go to you with joy because of your love. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.